Hi, everyone. My name is Dr. Trisha Rampersad, the core behavioral therapist. And today I have um, Dr. Rosemary Mirage. She is actually my auntie as well. She currently resides in Baltimore, Maryland. She attended the University of West Indies in Jamaica and also in Trinidad. And then she came up here and finished her studies in the United States. Um, and she's currently at MedStar Good Samaritan Hospital, which is affiliated with Georgetown University. Welcome, Auntie Rosemary. Glad to be here. Thanks for coming. And you're a physician up here. And um, can you tell us a little bit about how you grew up and where you grew up? So I grew up in uh, Trinidad, obviously, um, in the spring in the Springvale, which was where most of the Rambasad family um, you know, were born and then branched off in Springville and then we moved. Um, and uh, I grew up in Bang Village, Karakchaima, but we pretty much kept close contact with all our relatives. Um, and um, from there, I went to the University of the West Indies, um, Trinidad, and did a first degree. So I did a bachelor in science degree. And about second year, most of the uh, other um, students in my class were all talking about going into medicine. And then I sort of caught the bug and thought, hey, why not? I can do this. And so I just kind of applied along with them and um, got in and, you know, went to Jamaica. At that time, um, the University of the West Indies was located only in Jamaica. We didn't have the Mount Hope branch like we have in Trinidad now. So all the people from the Caribbean, all the students, aspiring doctors had to go to um, Jamaica. So I went to Jamaica in 1986 and was there for two and a half years. And then um, at that point, you had the option of going back to your home country or stayed in Jamaica. So I chose to go back to Trinidad and did two more years, completed medical school there. And, um, you know, after that, um, I got married when everyone was starting internship, July the 1st, 1990, 31 years ago, because I know I just had an anniversary. Um, um, I was getting married on July 1st and um, I had met my husband along the way. He's from the same village. Um, and the plan was always for me to migrate to Canada because that was where he was living. Yeah. So I thought, okay, I'll just get married and move to Canada and try to get into the Canadian medical system. However, it, at that time, it was very closed off to foreign medical graduates. But I did live in Canada for four years. I did do the exams a couple of times. And then um, people who had gone gone before me from the University of the West Indies told me, hey, you're wasting your time in Canada because they didn't know historically of any Trinidadians or anybody from the West Indies, as a matter of fact, to have gotten into um, the Canadian system. Wow. And, um, we were talking 1991, 92 thereabouts. So um, I did the exams and then um, gave up after a while and moved back to Trinidad and Tobago and did my internship there. Um, 18, at that time, it was 18 months of internship. Right. And as soon as I got back, like two months after I found out I was pregnant with my first oh. child. And, um, but decided to stay and finish up my internship. And then, um, so I had my baby in sort of like the middle part of my internship and, um, um, went to Canada, had him, and then moved back to Trinidad to finish my internship. 
And then when I was finished, I worked a little bit in Trinidad in one of the health centers. Yeah. Um, and then moved back to Canada again with my husband um, and tried again to get into the system there. Um, taught how to give it one more shot. Right. And um, then gave up after a while and did my US MLE exams, which is the United States Medical Licensing exams, right. which are the exams that all foreign medical graduates have to write to get into practice in the United States. And I did. And um, um, at the same time, uh, my husband wanted to move to the Bahamas to work there. So we moved there, I lived there for a while, um, and then I applied for residency. Wow, and what a whirlwind. Yeah, it was a long, it was a long um, trek, trek to get to where I am. But um, being a foreign medical graduate, you know, I, I also was working along with other foreign medical graduates, people from Iran, Iraq, Russia, wherever, who had migrated to Canada at the time all trying to get into the medical system, you know? So right. um, I met a lot of people along the way, um, you know, all trying, you know, had, having to do the licensing exams and get do an internship before you could practice in whichever country. Some people just stayed in Canada, you know, I moved here yeah. and um, did internship and then residency. And um, when I was almost finished, uh, there was a faculty position available in the residency program and I was asked to join and I have joined the faculty and okay. 21 years later, I'm still here. Wow. Congratulations. Yeah. What a big, big accomplishment and a lot of sacrifice. Well, there has been, but you know, I have a very supportive husband. Um, he's an engineer, thank goodness, not another doctor. Yeah. So most of the like, taking the kids to soccer and, you know, after school activities and stuff like that. And he, he took care of their homework and things like that. So if it wasn't for my husband, I don't think, you know, I would have made it this far. He was a big support for you mm -hmm. during this time. That's awesome. And, um, I mean, he's Trinidadian as well. He's from the same village. So he kind of understood, you know, culturally, we, you know, were the same and understood each other very well. So. That's that's pretty awesome. That's so awesome that you had that help. Were you around family to also help support or did you well, have to find your own? So my I so when I moved to the United States, I didn't really have any help. You know, we were here just all by ourselves. Um, but along the way, I mean, when, when I lived in the Bahamas for a short stint, um, I did work in the hospital there. That's before coming here to do internship. My mother-in-law will come for, you know, a few months at a time and she would help me with the kids. And then um, in the Bahamas, domestic help was fairly affordable. So I had a helper um, uh, who became almost like a family member, you know, she would just do anything for the kids. Um, so that helped out a lot. And I mean, my parents, of course, were supportive. They didn't really have um, any great aspirations for me. My father's one goal was for all his kids to go to university. Okay. And, um, you know, it was my idea sort of like to go to get into med school and stuff. And what happened was um, I got a scholarship, a government scholarship um, when I was in my first degree. I got a scholarship to do the medicine. So they didn't have to pay a cent, you know, they didn't have to support me financially, oh, but of course they supported me emotionally and morally and physically and all that kind of stuff. But um, um, I didn't have to pay a cent for medical school. It was all funded by the Trent Tobago government. 
That is so awesome. So that, that helped. And, um, you know, it's always, I come from a huge family. Um, as you know, my, my, on my father's side of the family, there were like eight brothers, four sisters. My mother's side of the family was seven sisters, two brothers. So it's a huge family with lots of cousins, you know, and in all that family, there was one doctor who was on my father's side of the family. You wouldn't know him. Um, um, And Um, I was just (laughs) the only one in in all of that. So, you know, um, it was a long trek, but I got here. Auntie Rosemary came from very humble beginnings. Um, well, Dr. Rosemary Mirage <laughs> came from very <laughs> humble beginnings. She, so um, Dr. Rosemary Mirage, her father and my grandfather are brothers and they shared a house um, with my mom and her siblings and they share the same house. It was just divided in a small village called Claxton Bay in Springvale. Trinidad. Auntie Rosemary and my mom live in the same house with a bunch of families. So to see you come out um, and just come out swinging and just keep going at it for your education is really, really big. And plus you got a full scholarship. That's just pretty awesome. Did you find the transition to the United States, becoming a doctor, being an Indo-Caribbean woman, becoming a doctor, was there any challenges that you went through? Well, initially, um, I mean, medicine here, of course, was a bit different because this is first world medicine as opposed to in the Caribbean um, practicing third world medicine. So what I realized in the beginning with the the third world medicine, um, you relied a lot more on your own clinical judgment and your own, um, you know, conclusions without the availability of numerous testing. When I started here, it took me a while to get adjusted because if sort of like a patient presented with a certain diagnosis, you did 10 different tests to prove it wasn't something else because, you know, you don't want to miss anything. Um, Because if you miss, of course, there were repercussions because of you know, you know, this litigious society. So that was a big getting adjustment. But internship and residency here, um, sort of, you know, pretty soon I got used to the way things are done here and started doing it. And another big thing here was um, evidence-based medicine, mm-hmm. um, which wasn't really a thing we, we did in medical school. You know, we just dealt with the evidence that was available because no one was doing any kind of um, studies or or, or right. um, any experiments in, in the Caribbean. So, but over here, medicine evolves so quickly um, because you know we sort of tend to follow evidence-based medicine and um, results of clinical trials, etc. Yes, it was- which I think the whole world now has become a little more familiar with because of COVID and this last year we've gone through. Everyone kind of understands what what it you know, how, how the, the, the information evolves. And um, even with all the vaccines trials and all that kind of stuff, I think people became more aware of how drugs come to market because of how the vaccines came to market. You know, everybody was waiting with bated breath until yeah. the first vaccine hit, you know. Yeah. So, um, so that was a major difference as well. But, you know, you learn the way things are done here and you do what's best for your patient, you know. Let me ask you this. What do you think about the medications out there for our vaccines that's happening all around the world? Do you 
What do you yeah. think? Well, so I really think that, I mean, I trust the FDA most of all. Um, and if the FDA issued emergency use authorization for, say, the Pfizer, um, uh, Johnson & Johnson, and Moderna vaccines, I believe that it went through a rigorous um, you know, vetting process mm -hmm. uh, when they first came out. And I really do believe in it. And I've been trying to encourage everyone to take it. There are some, still some people who are skeptical, you know, but um, there are probably reasons why, um, you know, other vaccines, I wouldn't name them, um, have not been approved for use in the United States, mm -hmm. but are being used elsewhere because it's the only vaccines that were available, you know, at the yeah. time. Um, but, um, you know, those are the three big ones that are, that are being used here. And um, I um, have been trying to encourage everyone to, to you know, take it. If later on anything else comes to light as to the side effects or whatever, you know, um, we'll have to deal with it when it comes. But I think it's because of that that we've come so far, especially in the United States, with our freedoms. Um, over here on July 1st, uh, we no longer have a mask mandate in Maryland because our positivity rate is something like 0.4%. And we've had no deaths in Maryland for the last two weeks. Wow, so the, the mask mandates have been lifted. And I think we only came this far for the believers in science and um, the believers that, you know, vaccines do work. And, and that's why we've been able to come this far, you know. Absolutely. Um, and I know we, the United States, have donated a lot of vaccines um, to COVAX and to international organization that's been distributing them el elsewhere. So hopefully... You know, but as you know, the vaccines just evolving so quickly with the Delta variants now, you know, uh, I'm hoping that the current vaccines will work for them. Yeah, yeah. that was actually going to be my next question, the Delta variants and um, the yeah, everything that's happening now. People are probably worried. This is a mental health podcast, as, as mm -hmm. you know, people are probably worried, have a lot of anxiety about, well, is this vaccine going to work for the different variants? Right. Um, speaking of, of anxiety, that was the main thing we had to deal with as doctors when the whole COVID pandemic started in March of last year. So basically, we shut down our practice. We had no in outpatients coming in, and uh, we had to deal with patients calling in. And I think anxiety was one of the big things we dealt with. Um, in the first few months before our practice opened back, mostly all days we dealt with calls from people who were very anxious. And, you know, we had to reassure people that once they follow the science and follow Dr. Fauci's advice, you know, um, and, and do what we were supposed to do in terms of, you know, the isolation, blah, blah, you know, all, yeah. all those um, methods, guidelines, yes. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I mean, we still have some people who are anxious and some people who haven't taken the vaccines because of their anxiety. And unfortunately, not much I can do about that. But I had to refer a lot of patients to therapists and psychiatrists who incidentally, to accommodate the amount of people who had anxiety issues, have started doing telephone telehealth visits. Oh, yes. um, so they were able to accommodate a lot more people. Uh, but being a primary care doctor, I had to also treat a lot of people because they couldn't get in with the psychiatrists and therapists. So I was saying, you know, the waiting lists are long right yeah. now, currently. Yeah, we could start you on medicines, but, you know, it's good to talk to someone. So we had 
So our, our hospital has this EHP program, which is a, a employee health program. And this mostly is for patients with, or, or employees with anxiety, depression, those types of issues. So they had like, I think their referral sort of tripled, you know, um, with, since the pandemic started. And um, they had to start limiting how many visits each person was allowed, you know, free visits that is. Um, but, um, <clears throat> you know, I, I, I had to go read up on all my anti-anxiety drugs and all yeah. that stuff to help people out. Right. And, um, you know, and, and then there was a, so much information and misinformation out there. Yes. And as a layperson, sometimes people couldn't pass out the difference and they would call us, you know, to um, try to help them, you know, figure things out. I also started doing um, telehealth visits myself um, and because patients wouldn't come into the office, my hospital, my hospital system started doing what we call e-visits, which we yeah. never did before. Um, so I started doing those like after, uh, after a while, um, we had this platform and most of the calls, almost 90% of the calls were people who were calling in because they need to get a COVID test. Right. And it was inevitably people who didn't do what they were supposed to do. You know, they still traveled to go see relatives you know, didn't wear a mask and all that kind of stuff. So, yes. Well, there's so many people who, who got COVID and survived it. And mm -hmm. I know people who have passed away um, from COVID and it's very unfortunate. So mm -hmm. I totally agree. I, I agree with you about taking, getting the vaccines. Mm -hmm. um, it, was it challenging to see patients um, through telehealth, through e-visits rather than seeing them in person? It was, um, but I think, um, you know, as they say, necessity is a mother of invention. Who would have thought of doing telephone visits prior to COVID, right? Right. Of course, you don't want a potentially infected person to come into the office. So one of the biggest challenge was you not being able to examine the patients. You know, we had to teach the patient to examine themselves, you know, and it was video visits. So we had a live um a visit and um, so the biggest challenge was not being able to examine the patient um, but if I'm talking to someone and they're able to speak in full sentences I know they're not short of breath right. so you know that they couldn't be that sick and then we encourage people to go out and purchase pulse oximeters you know so they could check their pulse oxes to monitor themselves if they did turn out to be COVID positive. But exactly is that? So a pulse oximeter is a little machine. Um, it's a really tiny device that you fit on your finger okay. and it can read um, from your pulse. It can read what your oxygen saturations are or oxygen levels are. And that was a big thing with the COVID when people had pneumonia and stuff, they got um, a hypoxic, which is low oxygen levels. So a lot of people by, by about two or three months into doing the e-visits, almost everybody owned a pulse oximeter, you know? Right. So, um, yeah, so it was challenging doing the e-visits, but like I said, most of the calls, over 90% of the calls were, oh, I went to visit my nanny or I went to visit my boyfriend in Texas and I came back and I have all these symptoms, you know, and well, did you wear a mask? No, you know, and, um, and then, um, so then we had to arrange for them to get COVID testing, which was, you know, very difficult to get one in the beginning yes. 
So at the beginning, we just had to sort of um, diagnose people based on their symptoms and then tell them to isolate because testing was not available initially. Right. You know, so there are challenges with doing the e-visits, obviously. But now we've, in my office, we've just gone back to all in-person visits and, and the patients are screened before they even make an appointment. So we still don't see patients who potentially have COVID. Right. Um, and because we didn't want to infect the staff, you know, the, in the office and all that. Right. What did you do for self-care for yourself during this time? Um, like I said, you know, I have a pretty good support system in my husband and family. Yeah. And like my daughter moved back home last year, March, because um, she, as you know, is in medical school. So yeah. Um, the school closed down in March of last year and she moved back home and they were just doing in-person in visits. So she was at home and uh, my husband at work, we were still coming to work every day and us doctors were talking amongst ourselves, you know. So I think we were sort of being support supportive and anybody who had anxiety, a little bit of anxiety about things, yeah. we, um, we sort of talked things over and... Um, and, and, and that I think helped us deal with all the questions and stuff that came up. And if anybody found out anything new, any new information, we sort of shared it with each other. So that was the main support system. And of course, whenever I spoke to any um, family members, I made sure that they were doing the right thing, you know, and advised them to do the right thing. By now, I think most of our relatives have been vaccinated. I think Canada is still a little behind. Um, I think in Canada, they're having a difficult time making those appointments to get tested. Yes. So, so they're still a little behind because my brother um, hasn't even gotten his second vaccine yet. Oh, no. And he is 57 or 58 now. And he hasn't gotten his second vaccine. So they're still a little behind. I think what they were doing, they were concentrating on at least making sure everybody got at least a first shot. Right. Right. Yeah. So, but um, because I had more time as we weren't seeing patients, I did a lot more reaching out to family members and they reached out to me if they had questions. Yes. You know, so, so that helped. I, I have a very good support system, thankfully, yes. um, you know, and um, try to support other people as well. Yes. So speaking to your family, speaking to um, your colleagues, that was a big help, just speaking yeah. it out. That's really, that really helped you go through, uh, cope with what was happening. Mm -hmm. you know, yeah. So what, everything that's happening in India right now with all the deaths, um, do you know anything about that? Um, I've been hearing all different types of things that a lot of them created the vaccines or what have you, and they don't even have enough vaccines in the country there. Yeah, that is very, that is so ironic, but you know, it's a third world country. And um, and initially, actually, India had donated like 20,000 vaccines to Trinidad. Wow. I did not know that. Yeah, India, they donated, India donated, India 20, donated 20,000 vaccines to Trinidad um, in, in, in the earlier state stages, but that was before they had this outbreak. And um, there are still so many poor people that don't have access to hospitals and stuff. So it was really chaotic for there for a while. And um, we have a lot of medical, I don't know, I'm, I'm in a residency program, um, associated with a residency program. And um, we have quite a few Indian residents. So they, you know, I, I kept in touch with them about how their family members were coping back home. But because they were all doctors, they came from fairly well-off families. So they had access to healthcare um, as opposed to people who come from remote villages where they weren't very close to, um, 
you know, to hospitals, etc., and then they didn't have oxygen. Um, you know, it was all in the news. Um, no, none of uh, my residents we have currently that I spoke to had any family members who had, uh, you know, not done well. But you know, it was all over the news about all the people who were dying and and yes. you know, all that stuff. It was really heartbreaking, you know. Yes, it was yeah. heartbreaking. But, um, and yeah, it's ironic that they make the vaccines there and they still didn't have enough to to give out. I think now they they're probably catching up, you know, with with getting the vaccinations and stuff because you're not hearing as much on the news as you were maybe like a month ago but the variants are taking hold everywhere even in the united states you know so yes i think the first variant case happened in southern california i think mm -hmm. i read that recently so yes but it's, it's in a lot of states now oh is it okay. as they're saying people who are unvaccinated are serving as incubators for the variants right so unfortunately, there are still some people who just don't want to get the vaccine for their own personal reasons. But I think that is a very selfish decision for people yeah. to say, oh, I don't want the vaccine because I'm afraid of this, that, and the other. They, they're not thinking of their relatives and protecting their relatives, their loved ones, you know, by day not getting the vaccine. Because they're, they're considered maybe the host person. Yeah. The yeah, so they're, they're being termed as incubators now, you know, for it, because if they get infected with the Delta variant, they are going to multiply and they can spread it to other people. My goodness. So do you think that we're, we're not wearing, us not wearing masks is too early right now? or what um, I thought it was probably a little too early, but, you know, it's, it's, it's a recommendation. Um, you don't have to do it. So I noticed uh, this weekend, like when I went to the food store, there were signs that saying masks are optional. Mm -hmm. So, and I think the people who are opting to not wear masks are people who were vaccinated. At least anybody who were, was not vaccinated are crazy to go out there without a mask. Right. But, you know, the problem is that when you go to the food store and you see people without masks, you don't know who was, was and was not vaccinated, right? Exactly. I went to the nail salon the other day and I had my mask on because the sign mm -hmm. said it outside. And the woman, uh, one of the owners asked a, a customer, please put on your mask. And the customer yelled at her and said, I don't need to wear my mask. It's, um, I'm vaccinated or whatever. But you don't know who's telling the truth about who's exactly. vaccinated and who's right. not. No one is telling right. us to walk around with a vaccine card, nothing like that. Right. I mean, I have a picture of my card on my phone, if anybody ever asks me anywhere. But not everybody does, you know, and and uh, there are cases of people who actually tested positive after having had a vaccine. We had a few people here at the hospital, but obviously they didn't get as sick, sick as they would have gotten if they had not gotten the vaccine, you know, but it still can happen. You still can get it, even though you're vaccinated. Because, um, I mean, when they say it's 95, for example, when Pfizer came out, they said it's 95% effective against getting infected, but there is still the 5%, right? Exactly, yeah. So, so the fact that you saw people um, get the vaccine and still- Still got it, yeah. That's pretty scary, that's yeah. scary stuff. I think it's all the whole fatigue thing, you know, isolation, COVID fatigue and all that stuff. People just wanna get out there and do stuff, you know? So they're taking their chances and figure they'll do, probably do okay if they, you know, if, if they don't wear a mask because people are just tired now. It's been almost a year and a half. Yes. We are still required to use it in the hospital, obviously, because this is where you would have 
sick patients, if any. So yeah. most of the hostels still have um, a mask mandate. Okay. And they're still screening people at the entrances for temperatures and all that kind of stuff. That, that's good. That's good. Um, I'm going to switch gears a little yeah, bit. Sure. Speaking of third world countries and, and what have you, you did something incredible. You took a team of doctors back to Trinidad to help out. Can you talk a bit about that? I'm proud of you for that. <laughs> I, want, I want people to hear about it. <laughs> So I didn't actually take the team. I was part of the team. Okay. So I, I belong to this team called Operation Walk Maryland, which is Operation uh, Walk Maryland. Is called? Sort of a subsidiary of Operation Walk America. Okay. So, um, so the team um, consists of this really our lead, the leader is this incredibly generous um, doctor, Dr. Harpal Kanuja. He is um, an orthopedic surgeon um, specializing in hip and knees replacements. And his wife is a nurse. Uh, she's actually now a nurse practitioner. So they sort of started off, started off the, the um, group and have been usually to some of the third world countries. So they went to El Salvador, Honduras, Peru, uh, Ecuador, you know, mostly underserved countries where they don't have access uh, to, to these procedures. So um, at, at the time, doctor, when I first went on a mission with them, um, Dr. Kanuja was working at Good Samaritan Hospital and was looking for a medical doctor to go because you have to still go screen the patients because you want the optimal, um, you know, medical healthy patients to do the procedures because you don't want to have any disasters in the operating theater. So he was looking around and he asked me um, if they were going to Peru at the time. And um, I thought, hey, what a great thing. Um, the caveat was that, so the Operation Walk Maryland, we fundraise and people give donations and stuff. Um, and this is to buy all the equipment, to pay for all the hip and knees. We take all the drugs. We take everything that's needed down to a Band-Aid. Um, and um, the, the group pays for the nurses, the physical therapists um, who go, but the doctors pay their own way. So, um, but, you know, I, I was so happy that he asked me and I jumped at the opportunity. So the first time I went, I went, we went to Peru about eight or nine years ago. And um, so it's all set up ahead of time where um, Operation Walk reaches out to um, doctors in whichever country that they're thinking of going to. And the orthopedic doctors there, you know, they have an orthopedic clinic and they set up patients. Right. So we go in the first day, we screen X amount of patients with the hope of doing 50. Sometimes we go, we do a lot more or, or less, but it was very long days starting at seven in the morning and never getting back to the hotel until 10 at night and you do it again the next day. So we went to Peru. Um, so that was great. So then the next time they had a couple trips after that, which I didn't go to. And then when I heard that they were going to Trinidad, well, actually, they reached out to me when they were going to Trinidad because they knew I was from Trinidad yeah. and asked me if I'd be interested in going. And so, of course, you know, and I went back and, oh, that that, that was a fantastic experience. Um, I confused the heck out of the patients because when I went in and talked Trinidadian to them, <laughs> oh, I thought you were from away. Okay, with the team. Right, you know, right. And I really bonded well with them and the nurses and everybody. So it, it was really a nice opportunity. I introduced the team to doubles and we went nice. at a time when it was Diwali. So I introduced them to some of the, the local food and stuff. And they went to the Nagar, which is where they had the foods and things. So that was it was an incredible week. And then the following year, they went to Guyana and they asked me again. 
um, and I went back with a team to Guyana. And we did more or less, we did like 54, I think, hip and knee replacements in Trinidad. Wow. Some people got two hips, you know, or two knees done at the same time. And um, and this, I remember one of the patients got up and said, you know, like he, the doctor was charging him $20,000 for one knee. So he had waited, been suffering for 10 years. Yeah. And here he got a knee for free. You know, he got a, um, that he got a new lease in life. So that that was really it was really heartening, and then um, in Guyana too, it was it, it, it was interesting. I'm from the Caribbean, right? So I right now, <laughs> and um, we were supposed to go to India last year, but it all got put off. So um, you know, I'm not sure when the next trip. I guess we have to wait until things go back to normal. Yes, but it was um, it was a great experience for the team. I think every everybody goes with the same um, sort of goal in mind to help people and you did what you had to do because as a doctor I mean I went and then if the nurse wasn't available I would give them their bedpan you know take it you know I did nursing so you're kind of like a jack of all trades kind of thing right. go you just do whatever you need to for the patient you know so yeah. it, was, it was a really great opportunity absolutely heart-wrenching yeah and heart-wrenching too mm -hmm. 10 years to suffer without any you know, right and yeah. that's 10 grand you know that's mm -hmm. a lot a lot of money in tt for yeah for a poor person you know and and they were all going to the clinic at the hospital without ever even having a hope of getting a knee replaced or whatever for years but then when they got were told that we were coming i mean the clinic was like flooded with relative with patients yeah. with their relatives and it, it's kind of hard to tell them they didn't qualify because, you know, of a medical reason. And, you know, and we could only do so much in the week that we were there. Yeah. So, and then after after we were there and everybody comes back home, um, just the surgeon and a little group goes back after six months just to see the patients again to make sure they're doing well. Okay, follow-up then. Yeah, follow-ups, yeah. Let me ask you this. When you did go to Guyana and Trinidad, did you, um, some people in our community don't believe in mental health. It's very taboo. Did you see any, well, let me ask you this. What do you think about that? Well, I agree it's taboo and it's still taboo and people in the Caribbean still tend to look at depression and anxiety as something to be ashamed of. Yeah. Um, and, and that's something they don't talk about, you know. Um, um, but when saying that as well, I think people, the family units in the Caribbean are tighter. So you sometimes have support from your family members, you know, to help. But but a lot of times your family members don't recognize depression or anxiety, you know. Yes. Um, so because we, I didn't experience it so much, like when I went back on the trips, but when I was living there, because I did practice in Trinidad for a little bit. And, um, and, and yes, yeah, so sometimes patients look at it as a weakness to admit that this is happening until unfortunately it's too late. You know? Exactly. Yeah. I think yeah. I totally agree with you. And I think also um, I hear some stories and, and I think that it needs to be addressed, uh, physical abuse, um, sexual abuse, all kinds of emotional abuse that happens everywhere. But I feel that in the Caribbean, people are now starting to notice some of those things and address it. Yeah, I think they're talking up. They're speaking up a lot more, especially the sexual abuse part. Mm -hmm. And um, I'm sure with the Me Too movement um, that has sort of, you know, trickled down to the Caribbean. So people are becoming more and more aware 
um, you know, so they're they're speaking up more, you know, which is good. It's it's great for the women and and for the you know teenagers who who somehow get abused by family members or um, you know others um, to speak up, you know, and that I think the Me Too movement we all knew it existed, but the Me Too movement brought it more to you know more forward and seeing people get prosecuted for it or tried and prosecuted for it. Yes is an encouragement as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I totally agree with you. I think, yeah. I, think um, I think medical professionals like yourself speaking up about it gives it power and, and women feel more empowered. So thank you for speaking up about that. Where do you see yourself five years from now? Um, let's see. <laughs> um, I'll island, something, you know, retire. I, I mean, I'm thinking of probably retiring soon, you know, but it'll probably be a few more years. I can retire at 62 or 65 or 67, you know, um, but we'll see how it goes, you know. Um, but I think I, I, I don't see myself changing my job. I mean, my my role now is as a primary care physician, and I really love that role. It's one of the lowest reimbursed, um, um, lowest paid specialty, but I just really like the longitudinal relationship with patients. And um, you know, and then the, a lot of times the mothers will bring their daughters when their daughters turn eighteen. Um, sometimes they bring their husbands as well. So and you you really get to know patients. I've had patients for the last twenty years. So yeah. you really get to know their family unit and stuff. So I really enjoy that. And I think this is where I will stay. Yeah. I also am um, involved with educating res medical residents and uh, our, our um, currently our residency program, because it's a community hospital, mostly have um, foreign medical graduates. So it's right. nice to sort of talk to them. And I think they like knowing that there is a faculty person who've been through what they've been through. You know, and even I even had it harder in my days, which was many years ago, because and then there were no work hour rules and those kinds of things, which there are now. Yeah. So I think I'll just be doing this for now. Yeah. Um, until I retire. Yes. Yeah. I think I've sort of gotten to where I want to be. Mm -hmm. I mean, I did an M three years ago. I did an MBA. Uh, because I wanted to. Um, Congratulations. Yeah, when my daughter went away to college, I was sort of at a loss. Suddenly I had no kids to look at. <laughs> and I, I was a little bit bored and I felt understimulated. So I, I went, I enrolled in an MBA, which ran over three and a half years. Right. Uh, that was that was great too, you know, intermingling with people from other fields. Yeah. So, um, I mean, I was the only physician, but we had like a real estate agent, people who worked for um, a gas station, you know, but mostly managers. Um, so that was that was a really nice experience. And then I'm starting to get bored again. So who knows? I mean, yes, who knows what will happen? You know? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Before we leave, I do want to ask about, um, you know, Uncle Moses. Uh -huh. How did you cope with all of that? So Uncle Moses is is Dr. Rosemary Mirage's brother, and he tragically passed away years ago. And he was a very giving person. And and you tell more about what he was doing, like as a pilot. So um, yeah, so he was he um, he he was very generous. He never knew how to say no to anyone, and um, he was a pilot as well. And um, they had um, decided to to take um, some supplies to St. Martin 
where there was, which is an island in the Caribbean where there was, um, I think a storm had passed by mm -hmm. and um, they were in need of supplies. So he, he flew some supplies there and then on his way back just disappeared in the mountains of Martinique. And when they found him, he had crashed and he died. And this was just after a year after my father died. So that, that was kind of tough. It was harder more so for my mother, I think, because when my father died, she only had him in Trinidad to take right. care of things. Right. And he was uh, four or five months away from getting married. I mean, the wedding invitations were already sent. Mm -hmm. um, and so that it was really tough um, when I went, you know, and I, I had to go identify the body. And yeah. it was really surreal, right? Because I never right. had to do this before. And I had, I was in the role of a sister rather than a doctor. Yes. Doctor, yeah. you were a sister. Yeah. Yes. Um, it, it was hard going through that. And even the funeral and stuff, you know, um, with everybody saying how good, what a great person he was and, and all that kind of stuff. But again, my husband, my biggest supporter was there. Yeah. And I'm sure he's, I'm sure Uncle Moses is very proud of you, Auntie. Well, I mean, I guess he was at the time. <laughs> but, but also currently, too, because you've accomplished a lot after then too you know so I think, I think coming from the caribbean we're made of strong material as it were yes you know, and um and 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 it it give us the strength to overcome adversity and you know and um and to to have reached this far you know yes like to say it takes a village right it takes a village so, mm -hmm. And you're doing great work. You really are. And I'm so proud of you. I'm proud that you're my family. <laughs> and, um, you. you know, thank you so much for taking time out to speak to us and um, to talk about all of these issues, very important issues, especially getting vaccinated um, and just keep thriving. And if anyone wanted to get in touch with you, let's say students or people who have it, who want to seek advice about how do I um, become get into the medical field if I am from the Caribbean or if I'm not American or if I'm not Canadian or, or what have you how can they get in touch with you I mean people can email me if they like it's um, rosemarie.mirage at medstar.net um, if anyone wants to reach out um, okay. right now we have a guy from St. Lucia in our program Yes. Um, and but he went to medical school in Trinidad and Mount Hope. Yeah. Um, previous years we had a few people who went to Mount Hope Trinidad and made it here. Um, and when I find that there are these people, you know, it's hard when you migrate to a new country to try to find an apartment and yeah. you know all the stuff that goes with it. I always reach out to them and say, you know, just let me know if you need help with anything. You know, I'll be happy to help because I know I know what I went through, so I know what they will have to do. Yeah. So I'm totally happy to help anyone, you know, just reach out to me. That's awesome. Thank you so much again, Dr. You're welcome. Raj. I appreciate you. And um, I just want to thank everyone for listening to the Corporate Hero Therapist, Dr. Trisha Ramperson, and I'll see you next time. Bye. Bye. So yes, Auntie Rosemary and my mom live in the same house with a bunch of family. So to see you come out um, and just come out swinging and just keep going at it for your education is really, really big. And plus you got a full scholarship. That's just pretty awesome.
Did you find the transition to the United States, becoming a doctor, being an Indo-Caribbean woman, um, becoming a doctor, was there any challenges that you went through? Well, initially, um, I mean, medicine here, of course, was a bit different because this is first world medicine as opposed to in the Caribbean um, <clears throat> practicing third world medicine. So what I realized in the beginning with the, the third world medicine, um, you relied a lot more on your own clinical judgment and your own um, you know, conclusions without the availability of numerous testing. Um, and um, when I started here, it took me a while to get adjusted because um, if sort of like a patient presented with a certain diagnosis, you did 10 different tests to prove it wasn't something else because, you know, you don't want to miss anything. Um, because if you miss, of course, there were repercussions because of, you know, you know, this litigious society. So that was a big getting adjustment. But internship and residency here, um, sort of, you know, pretty soon I got used to the way things are done here and started doing it. And another big thing here was um, evidence-based medicine, mm -hmm. um, which wasn't really a thing we, we did in medical school. You know, we just dealt with the evidence that was available because no one was doing any kind of um, studies or, or, or right. um, any experiments in, in the Caribbean. So, but over here, medicine evolves so quickly um, because, you know, we sort of tend to follow evidence-based medicine and um, results of clinical trials, et cetera. Yes. It was Which I think the whole world now has become a little more familiar with because of COVID and this last year we've gone through, everyone kind of understands what, what it, you know, how, how the, the, the information evolves. And um, even with all the vaccines trials and all that kind of stuff, I think people became more aware of how drugs come to market because of how the vaccines came to market, you know, everybody was waiting with bated breath until yeah. the first vaccine hit, you know. Yeah. So, um, so that was a major difference as well. But, you know, you learn the way things are on here and you do what's best for your patient, you know. Let me ask you this. What do you think about the medications out there for our vaccines that's happening all around the world? Do you what do you yeah. think? Well, so I really think that I mean, I trust the FDA most of all. Um, and if the FDA issued emergency use authorization for, say, the Pfizer, um, uh, Johnson & Johnson, and Moderna vaccines, I believe that it went through a rigorous, um, you know, vetting process mm -hmm. uh, when they first came out. And I really do believe in it. And I've been trying to encourage everyone to take it. There are some, still some people who are skeptical you know, but um, there are probably reasons why, um, you know, other vaccines, I wouldn't name them, um, have not been approved for use in the United States, but are being used elsewhere because it's the only vaccines that were available, you know, at the yeah. time. Um, but, um, you know, those are the three big ones that are, that are being used here. And um, I um, have been trying to encourage everyone to, to you know, take it. Mm -hmm. If later on anything else comes to light as to the side effects or whatever, you know, um, we'll have to deal with it when it comes. But I think it's because of that that we've come so far, especially in the United States, with our freedoms. Um, over here on July 1st, 
Uh, we no longer have a mask mandate in Maryland because our positivity rate is something like 0.4%. And we've had no deaths in Maryland for the last two weeks. Wow. So the, the mask mandates have been lifted. And I think we only came this far for the believers in science and um, the believers that, you know, vaccines do work. And, and that's why we've been able to come this far, you know? Absolutely. Um, and I know we, the United States, have donated a lot of vaccines um, to COVAX and to international organization that's been distributing them el elsewhere. So hopefully, you know, but as you know, the vaccines just evolving so quickly with the Delta variants now, you know, uh, I'm hoping that the current vaccines will work for them. Yeah. yeah. That was actually going to be my next question, the Delta variants and um, the different, yeah, everything that's happening now, people are probably worried. This is a mental health podcast, as, as mm -hmm. you know, people are probably worried, have a lot of anxiety about, well, is this vaccine going to work for the different variants? Right. Um, speaking of, of anxiety, that was the main thing we had to deal with as doctors when the whole COVID pandemic started in March of last year. So basically we shut down our practice. We had no in our patients coming in and uh, we had to deal with patients calling in. And I think anxiety was one of the big things we dealt with mm -hmm. um, in the first few months before our practice opened back. Mostly all days we dealt with calls from people who were very anxious. And, you know, we had to reassure people that once they follow the science and follow Dr. Fauci's advice, yes. you know, um, and, and do what we were supposed to do in terms of, you know, the isolation, blah, blah, you know, all, yeah. all those um, methods. All the guidelines, yes. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I mean, we still have some people who are anxious and some people who haven't taken the vaccines because of their anxiety. And unfortunately, not much I can do about that. But I had to refer a lot of patients to therapists and psychiatrists who incidentally, to accommodate the amount of people who had anxiety issues, have started doing telephone telehealth visits. Oh, yes. um, so they were able to accommodate a lot more people. Uh, but being a primary care doctor, I had to also treat a lot of people because they couldn't get in with the psychiatrists and therapists. So I was saying, you know, oh, the they, waiting lists are long right yeah. now. Currently, yeah, we can start you on medicines, but you know, it's good to talk to someone. So, we had so our, our hospital has this EHP program, which is a, a employee health program, and this mostly is for patients with or, or employees with anxiety, depression, those types of issues. So, they had like I think their referral sort of tripled, you know, um, with since the pandemic started, and um, they had to start limiting how many visits each person was allowed you know, free visits that is. Um, but, um, <clears throat> you know, I, I, I had to go read up on all my anti-anxiety drugs and all <laughs> yeah. stuff to help people out. Right. And, um, you know, and, and then there was a, so much information and misinformation out there. Yes. And as a layperson, sometimes people couldn't pass out the difference and they would call us, you know, to um, try to help them, you know, figure things out. I also started doing um, telehealth visits myself um, and because patients wouldn't come into the office. My hospital, my hospital system started doing what we call e-visits, which we yes. never did before. Um, so I started doing those like after, uh, after a while um, we had this platform and most of the calls, almost 90% of the calls were people who were calling in because they need to get a COVID test. Right. And it was inevitably people who didn't do what they were supposed to 
to do, you know, they still traveled to go see relatives, you know, didn't wear a mask and all that kind of stuff. So yes. Well, there's so many people who, who got COVID and survived it. And mm -hmm. I know people who have passed away um, from COVID and it's very unfortunate. So mm -hmm. I totally agree. I, I agree with you about taking getting the vaccines. Mm -hmm. um, it, was it challenging to see patients um, through telehealth, through e-visits, rather than seeing them in person? It was, um, but I think, um, you know, as they say, necessity is a mother of invention. Who would have thought of doing telephone visits prior to COVID, right? Right. Of course, you don't want a potentially infected person to come into the office. So one of the biggest challenge was you not being able to examine the patients. You know, we had to teach the patient to examine themselves, you know, and it was video visits. So we had a live um, a visit. And um, so the biggest challenge was not being able to examine the patient. Um, but if I'm talking to someone and they're able to speak in full sentences, I know they're not short of breath, right. so you know that they couldn't be that sick. And then we encourage people to go out and purchase pulse oximeters, you know, so they can check their pulse oxes to monitor themselves if they did turn out to be COVID positive. What exactly is that? Pulse. So a pulse oximeter is a little machine. Um, it's a really tiny device that you fit on your finger okay. and it can read um, from your pulse. It can read what your oxygen saturations are or oxygen levels are. And that was a big thing with the COVID when people had pneumonia and stuff, they got um, a hypoxic, which is low oxygen levels. So a lot of people by, by about two or three months into doing the e-visits, almost everybody owned a pulse oximeter, you know? Right. So, um, yeah, so it was challenging doing the e-visits, but like I said, most of the calls, over 90% of the calls were, oh, I went to visit my nanny or I went to visit my boyfriend in Texas and I came back and I have all these symptoms, you know, and well, did you wear a mask? No, you know, and, um, and then, um, so then we had to arrange for them to get COVID testing, which was, you know, very difficult to get one in the beginning. Yes. So at the beginning, we just had to sort of um, diagnose people based on their symptoms and then tell them to isolate because testing was not available initially. Right. You know, so there are challenges with doing the e-visits, obviously. But now we've, in my office, we've just gone back to all in-person visits and, and the patients are screened before they even make an appointment. So we still don't see patients who potentially have COVID Right. Yeah, um, because we didn't want to infect the staff, you know, the, in the office and all that. Right. What did you do for self-care for yourself during this time? Um, like I said, you know, I have a pretty good support system in my husband and family. Yeah. And like my daughter moved back home last year, March, because um, she, as you know, is in medical school. So yeah. Um, the school closed down in March of last year and she moved back home and they were just doing in-person in visits. So she was at home and uh, my husband at work, we were still coming to work every day and us doctors were talking amongst ourselves, you know. So I think we were sort of being support supportive and anybody who had anxiety, a little bit of anxiety about things, yeah. we, um, we sort of talked things over and... Um, and, and, and that, I think, helped us deal with all the questions and stuff that came up. And if anybody found out anything new, any new information, we sort of shared it with each other. So that was the main support system. And of course, whenever I spoke to any um, family members, I made sure that they were doing the right thing, you know, and advised them to do the right thing. 
By now, I think most of our relatives have been vaccinated. I think Canada is still a little behind. Um, I think in Canada, they're having a difficult time making those appointments to get tested. Yes, so, so they're still a little behind because my brother um, hasn't even gotten his second vaccine yet. Oh, no. And he is 57 or 58 now. And he hasn't gotten his second vaccine. So they're still a little behind. I think what they were doing, they were concentrating on at least making sure everybody got at least a first shot. Right. Right. Yeah. So, but um, because I had more time as we weren't seeing patients, I did a lot more reaching out to family members and they reached out to me if they had questions. Yes. So, so that helped. I, I have a very good support system, thankfully, yes. um, you know, and um, try to support other people as well. Yes. So speaking to your family, speaking to um, your colleagues, that was a big help, just speaking mm -hmm. out. That's really that really helped you go through, uh, cope with what was happening. Mm -hmm. no, yeah. So what, everything that's happening in India right now, with all the deaths, um, do you know anything about that? Um, I've been hearing all different types of things that a lot of them created the vaccines or what have you, and they don't even have enough vaccines in the country there. Yeah, that is very that is so ironic. But you know, it's a third world country. And, um, and initially, actually, India had donated like 20,000 vaccines to Trinidad. Wow. And I did not know that. Yeah, India, they donated, did. India donated, India 20, donated 20,000 vaccines to Trinidad um, right. in, in, in the earlier state stages, but that was before they had this outbreak. And um, there are still so many poor people that don't have access to hospitals and stuff. So it was really chaotic for there for a while. And um, we have a lot of medical, I don't know, I'm, I'm in a residency program, um, associated with a residency program. And um, we have quite a few Indian residents. So they, you know, I, I kept in touch with them about how their family members were coping back home. But because they were all doctors, they came from fairly well-off families. So they had access to healthcare um, as opposed to people who come from remote villages where they weren't very close to, um, you know, hospitals, et cetera, and then they didn't have oxygen. Um, you know, it was all in the news. Yeah. Um, no, none of uh, my residents we have currently that I spoke to had any family members who had, uh, you know, not done well, but, you know, it was all over the news about all the people who were dying and, and yes. you know, all that stuff. It was really heartbreaking, you know? Yes, it was heartbreaking. Yeah. But, um, and yeah, it's ironic that they make the vaccines there and they still didn't have enough to, to give out. I think now they, they're probably catching up, you know, with, with getting the vaccinations and stuff, because you're not hearing as much on the news as you were maybe like a month ago. But the variants are taking hold everywhere, even in the United States, you know, so. Yes, I think the first variant case happened in Southern California, I think. Mm -hmm. I read that recently, so yes. But it's, it's in a lot of states now. Oh, is it? Okay. As they're saying, people who are unvaccinated are serving as incubators for the variants. Right. So unfortunately, there are still some people who just don't want to get the vaccine for their own personal reasons. But I think that is a very selfish decision for people to say, oh, I don't want the vaccine because I'm afraid of this, that and the other. They they're not thinking of their relatives and protecting their relatives, their loved ones, you know, by day not getting the vaccine. Because they're they're considered maybe the host person. Yeah. Yeah, so they're, they're being termed as incubators now, you know, for it, it because if they get infected with the Delta variant, they are going to multiply, 
and they can spread it to other people. My goodness. So do you think that we're, we're not wearing, us not wearing masks is too early right now? or what do you um, I thought it was probably a little too early, but you know, it's, it's, it's a recommendation. Um, you don't have to do it. So I noticed uh, this weekend, like when I went to the food store, there were signs that saying masks are optional. So, and I think the people who are opting to not wear masks are people who go vaccinated. At least anybody who was not vaccinated are crazy to go out there without a mask. Right. But, you know, the problem is that when you go to the food store and you see people without masks, you don't know who was, was and was not vaccinated, right? Exactly. I went to the nail salon the other day and I had my mask on because the sign mm -hmm. said it outside. And the woman, uh, one of the owners asked a, a customer, please put on your mask. And the customer yelled at her and said, I don't need to wear my mask. It's, um, I'm vaccinated or whatever. But you don't know who's telling the truth about who's exactly. vaccinated and who's right. not. No one is telling right. us to walk around with a vaccine card, nothing like that. Right. I mean, I have a picture of my card on my phone, if anybody ever asks me anywhere, but not everybody does, you know, and, and uh, there are cases of people who actually tested positive after having had a vaccine. We had a few people here at the hospital, but obviously they didn't get as sick, sick as they would have gotten if they had not gotten the vaccine, you know, but it still can happen. You still can get it, even though you're vaccinated. Because, um, I mean, when they say it's 95, for example, when Pfizer came out, they said it's 95% effective against getting infected. But there is still the 5%, right? Exactly, yeah. So, so the fact that you saw people um, get the vaccine and still... Still got it, yeah. That's pretty scary. That's yeah. scary stuff. I think it's all the whole fatigue thing, you know, isolation, COVID fatigue and all that stuff. People just want to get out there and do stuff, you know? So they're taking their chances and figure they'll do probably do okay if they, you know, if, if they don't wear a mask because people are just tired now. It's been almost a year and a half. Yes. We are still required to use it in the hospital, obviously, because this is where you would have sick patients, if any. So yeah. most of the hospitals still have um, a mask mandate. Okay. And they're still screening people at the entrances for temperatures and all that kind of stuff. That, that's good. That's good. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm going to switch gears a little yeah, bit. Sure. Speaking of third world countries and, and what have you, you did something incredible. You took a team of doctors back to Trinidad to help out. Can you talk a bit about that? I'm proud of you for that. <laughs> I, want, I want people to hear about it. So I didn't actually take the team. I was part of the team. Okay. So I, I belong to this team called Operation Walk Maryland, which is Operation uh, Walk Maryland. Uh, is called? Sort of a subsidiary of Operation Walk America. Okay. So, um, so the team um, consists of this really our lead, the leader is this incredibly generous um, doctor, Dr. Harpal Kanuja. He is um, an orthopedic surgeon um, specializing in hip and knees replacements. And his wife is a nurse. Uh, she's actually now a nurse practitioner. So they sort of started off, started off the, the um, group and have been usually to some of the third world countries. So they went to El Salvador, Honduras, Peru, uh, Ecuador, you know, mostly underserved countries where they don't have access 
uh, to to these procedures. So um, at, at the time, Doctor, when I first went on a mission with them, um, Doctor Kanuja was working at Good Samaritan Hospital and was looking for a medical doctor to go because you have to still go screen the patients because you want the optimal, um, you know, medical healthy patients to do the procedures because you don't want to have any disasters in the operating theater. So he was looking around and he asked me, um, if they were going to Peru at the time. And um, I thought, hey, what a great thing. Um, the caveat was that, so the Operation Walk Maryland, we fundraise and people give donations and stuff. Um, and this is to buy all the equipment, to pay for all the hip and knees. We take all the drugs. We take everything that's needed down to a Band-Aid. Um, and um, the, the group pays for the nurses, the physical therapists um, who go, but the doctors pay their own way. So, um, but, you know, I, I was so happy that he asked me and I jumped at the opportunity. So the first time I went, I went, we went to Peru about eight or nine years ago. And um, so it's all set up ahead of time where um, Operation Walk reaches out to um, doctors in whichever country that they're thinking of going to. And the orthopedic doctors there, you know, they have an orthopedic clinic and they set up patients. Right. So we go in the first day, we screen X amount of patients with the hope of doing 50. Sometimes we go, we do a lot more or, or less, but it was very long days starting at seven in the morning and never getting back to the hotel until 10 at night and you do it again the next day. So we went to Peru, um, so that was great. So then the next time they had a couple trips after that, which I didn't go to. And then when I heard that they were going to Trinidad, well, actually they reached out to me when they were going to Trinidad because they knew I was from Trinidad yeah. and asked me if I'd be interested in going. And so, of course, you know, and I went back and, oh, that that, that was a fantastic experience. Um, I confused the heck out of the patients because when I went there and talked Trinidadian to them, <laughs> oh, I thought you were from away. Okay, with the team. Right. You know, right. And I really bonded well with them and the nurses and everybody. So it, it was really a nice opportunity. I introduced the team to doubles and we went nice. at a time when it was Diwali. So I introduced them to some of the, the local food and stuff. And they went to the Nagar, which is where they had the foods and things. So that was, it was an incredible week. And then the following year, they went to Guyana and they asked me again. Um, and I went back with a team to Guyana. And we did more or less, we did like 54, I think, hip and knee replacements in Trinidad. Wow. Some got two hips, you know, or two knees done at the same time. And, um, and this, I remember one of the patients got up and said, you know, like, he, the doctor was charging him $20,000 for one knee. So he had waited, been suffering for 10 years. Yeah. And here he got a knee for free, you yeah. know, he got a, um, that he got a new lease in life. So that, that was really, it was really heartening. And then um, in Guyana too, it was, it, it, it was interesting. I'm from the Caribbean, right? So I, right. I know. <laughs> and um, we were supposed to go to India last year, but it all got put off. So, um, you know, I'm not sure when the next trip, I guess we have to wait until things go back to normal. Yes. But it was, um, it was a great experience for the team. I think every, everybody goes with the same um, sort of goal in mind to help people. And you did what you had to do. Because as a doctor, I mean, I went and then if the nurse wasn't available, I would give them their bedpan, you know, take it, you know, I did nursing. So you're kind of like a jack of all trades kind of thing. Right. Go, you just do whatever you need to for the patient, you know. So yeah. it, was, it was a really great opportunity. Absolutely. Heart-wrenching, yeah. 
and heart-wrenching too mm-hmm. 10 years to suffer without any you know, right and yeah. it's 10 grand you know that's mm-hmm. a lot a lot of money in tt for yeah for a poor person you know and and they were all going to the clinic at the hospital without ever even having a hope of getting a knee replaced or whatever for years but then when they got were told that we were coming i mean the clinic was like flooded with relative with patients yeah. with their relatives and it, it's kind of hard to tell them they didn't qualify because, you know, of a medical reason. And, you know, and we could only do so much in the week that we were there. Yeah. So and then after after we were there and everybody comes back home, um, just the surgeon and a little group goes back after six months just to see the patients again to make sure they're doing well. OK, follow up then. Yeah, follow ups. Yeah. Let me ask you this. When you did go to Guyana and Trinidad, did you, um, some people in our community don't believe in mental health. It's very taboo. Did you see any, well, let me ask you this. What do you think about that? Well, I agree it's taboo and it's still taboo and people in the Caribbean still tend to look at depression and anxiety as something to be ashamed of. Yeah. Um, and, and that's something they don't talk about, you know. Um, um, but when saying that as well, I think people, the family units in the Caribbean are tighter. So you sometimes have support from your family members, you know, to help. But but a lot of times your family members don't recognize depression or anxiety, you know. Yes. Um, so because we, I didn't experience it so much, like when I went back on the trips, but when I was living there, because I did practice in Trinidad for a little bit. And, um, and, and yeah, so sometimes patients look at it as a weakness to admit that this is happening until, unfortunately, it's too late. Exactly. Yeah. I think yeah. I totally agree with you. And I think also um, I hear some stories and, and I think that it needs to be addressed, uh, physical abuse, um, sexual abuse, all kinds of phys- abu- emotional abuse. It happens everywhere. But I feel that in the Caribbean, people are now starting to notice some of those things and address it. Yeah, I think they're talking up, they're speaking up a lot more, especially the sexual abuse part. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm sure with the Me Too movement, um, that has sort of, you know, trickled down to the Caribbean. So people are becoming more and more aware, um, you know, so they're, they're speaking up more, you know, which is good. It's, it's great for the women and, and for the, you know, teenagers who, who somehow get abused by family members or, um, you know, others um, to speak up, you know, and that I think the Me Too movement, we all knew it existed, but the Me Too movement brought it more to, you know, more forward and seeing people get prosecuted for it or try to prosecute it for it yes. is an encouragement as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I totally agree with you. I yeah. think, I think, um, I think medical professionals like yourself speaking up about it gives it power and, and women feel more empowered. So thank you for speaking up about that. Where do you see yourself five years from now? Um, let's see. <laughs> um, I'll Island, Sipping, you know, retire. I, I mean, I'm thinking of probably retiring soon, you know, but it'll probably be a few more years. I can retire at 62 or 65 or 67, you know, um, but we'll see how it goes, you know. Um, but I think I, I, I don't see myself changing my job. I mean, my my role now is as a primary care physician, and I really love that role. It's one of the lowest reimbursed, um, um, lowest paid specialty, 
but I just really like the longitudinal relationship with patients and, um, you know, and then the, a lot of times the mothers will bring their daughters when their daughters turn 18. Um, sometimes they bring their husbands as well. So and you, you really get to know patients. I've had patients for the last 20 years. So yeah. you really get to know their family unit and stuff. So I really enjoy that. And I think this is where I will stay. Yeah. I also am involved with educating res medical residents and uh, our, our um, currently our residency program, because it's a community hospital, mostly have um, foreign medical graduates. So right. it's nice to sort of talk to them. And I think they like knowing that there is a faculty person who've been through what they've been through. You know, and even I even had it harder in my days, which was many years ago, because and then there were no work hour rules and those kinds of things, which there are now. Yeah. So I think I'll just be doing this for now. Yeah. Um, until I retire. Yes. Yeah. I think I sort of gotten to where I want to be. Mm -hmm. I mean, I did an M three years ago. I did an MBA. Uh, because I wanted to. Um, Congratulations. Yeah, when my daughter went away to college, I was sort of at a loss. Suddenly I had no kids to look at. <laughs> and I, I was a little bit bored and I felt understimulated. So I, I went, I enrolled in an MBA, which ran over three and a half years. Right. Uh, that, was, that was great too, you know, intermingling with people from other fields. Yeah. So, um, I mean, I was the only physician, but we had like a real estate agent, people who worked for um, a gas station, you know, but mostly managers. Mm -hmm. um, so that was that was a really nice experience. And then I'm starting to get bored again. So who knows? I mean, yes, who knows what will happen? You know? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Before we leave, I do want to ask about, um, you know, Uncle Moses. Uh -huh. How did you cope with all that? So Uncle Moses is is Dr. Rosemary Mirage's brother, and he tragically passed away years ago. And he was a very giving person. And, and you tell more about what he was doing, like as a pilot. So, um, yeah, so he was he um, he he was very generous. He never knew how to say no to anyone. And um, he was a pilot as well. And um, they had um, decided to to take um, some supplies to St. Martin, where there was, which is an island in the Caribbean where there was, um, I think a storm had passed by mm -hmm. and um, they were in need of supplies. So he, he flew some supplies there and then on his way back just disappeared in the mountains of Martinique. And when they found him, he had crashed and he died. And this was just after a year after my father died. So that, that was kind of tough. It was harder more so for my mother, I think, because when my father died, she only had him in Trinidad to take right. care of things. Right. And he was uh, four or five months away from getting married. I mean, the wedding invitations were already sent. Mm -hmm. um, and so that it was really tough um, when I went, you know, and I, I had to go identify the body. And yeah. it was really surreal, right? Because I never right. had to do this before. And I had, I was in the role of a sister rather than a doctor. Yes. Not the doctor, you were a sister. Yeah. Yes. Um, it, it was hard going through that. And even the funeral and stuff, you know, um, with everybody saying how good, what a great person he was and, and all that kind of stuff. But again, my husband, my biggest supporter was there. Yeah. And I'm sure he's, I'm sure Uncle Moses is very proud of you, Auntie. Well, I mean, I guess he was at the time. <laughs> <laughs> but, but also currently, too, because you've accomplished a lot after then too you know 
So I think coming from the Caribbean, we're made of strong material, as it were. Yes. You know, and um, and 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 it it give us the strength to overcome adversity, and you know, and um, and to to have reached this far, you know. Yes. It's like they say, it takes a village. Right. That takes yeah. a village. Mm -hmm. And you're doing great work. You really are. And I'm so proud of you. I'm proud that you're my family. <laughs> and, um, you know, thank you so much for taking time out to speak to us and um, to talk about all of these issues, very important issues, especially getting vaccinated um, and just keep thriving. And if anyone wanted to get in touch with you, let's say students or people who have a who want to seek advice about how do I um, become get into the medical field if I am from the Caribbean or if I'm not American or if I'm not Canadian or, or what have you? How can they get in touch with you? I mean, people can email me if they like. It's um, rosemarie.mirage at medstar.net. Mm -hmm. um, if anyone wants to reach out, um, okay. right now we have a guy from St. Lucia in our program. Yes. Um, and but he went to medical school in Trinidad and Mount Hope. Yeah. Um, previous years we had a few people who went to Mount Hope Trinidad and made it here. Um, and when I find that there are these people, you know, it's hard when you migrate to a new country to try to find an apartment and yeah. you know all the stuff that goes with it. I always reach out to them and say, you know, just let me know if you need help with anything. You know, I'll be happy to help because I know I know what I went through, so I know what they will have to do. Yeah. So I'm totally happy to help anyone, you know, just reach out to me. That's awesome. Thank you so much again, Dr. You're welcome. Raj. I yeah. appreciate you. And um, I just want to thank everyone for listening to the Core Behavioral Therapist, Dr. Trisha Ramperson, and I'll see you next time. Bye. Bye. Bye.